0: It's the 50th episode! Hello and welcome to Strange Love of Movies. My name is Livia Martinez and I'm here with my two co hosts, Oscar and Emily Martinez. And today we're going to be discussing none other than the film that inspired our name, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This movie is directed by Stanley Kubrick, it's in black and white, it's a satire about the Cold War, and it is great, and the title is great also, and that is why we use it for Strange Love of Movies. If you've ever wondered where our name comes from,
1: it's from Dr. Strangelove. Well, hi, everyone. I can't believe we've made it to the big 5-0.
2: Yes, and it's appropriate that we're doing, as Liv mentioned, this is our 50th episode. We thought, what better movie to talk about than the one we named our podcast after? And as Liv mentioned also, it is a classic. It's as classic as they come with the people involved, starting with the writer and director, Stanley Kubrick.
1: It also features... Peter Sellers and George C. Scott in roles that really allow them to just go over the top and just have fun playing crazy characters.
2: It really shows you can't go wrong with such talented people, but how many movies have we seen where talented people are involved and you do go wrong? So it was a classic combination of an incredible script, incredible direction, art direction, the scenes were impeccable. And then it was a, a it's a comedy about nuclear war.
0: How do you make that funny? I know it's somehow almost, they do. It's
2: almost impossible. And we think now how things are crazy in our country. Three words the Cold War. At any given time, this planet could have exploded because of a nuclear incident or accident. And that's where The plot kind of starts with this film.
0: Yeah, and since it is our 50th episode, I think we have finally learned that we need to start with the plot and then get to all of our fun facts because we're big on fun facts. But the plot is essentially following three different stories. One is in the air, one is at a military base, Mm -hmm. and then the third one is just in the war room, which is kind of a very secure... It's in the Pentagon, right? Yes, I never realized, I mean, it's kind of Dunkirk vibes, just because I know they're in different locations, but Dunkirk is split into three locations in the war movie, and so is this one. But this movie isn't really focusing on a specific battle, and I mean, it's kind of a make-believe incident, but it could have easily happened.
2: Apparently, yes, it could have. I mean, there's all sorts of articles about this movie that, at the time... Uh, certain people had certain power. Only the president of the United States should have that power to declare a nuclear war. But apparently in the early days, other people had that power in real life. And it's pretty fascinating. Look at that, especially with the idea that it could have happened. I mean, it really could have happened. I wonder what the audience has felt at the time because it didn't seem like a funny topic.
1: This movie was made at a time when people really were living under the threat of a potential nuclear war that would wipe everybody out. So it is impressive that filmmakers could make a movie that actually makes an audience laugh about something so serious.
0: Exactly. And really the main conflict in this movie is miscommunication in the highest form of it because... Basically, there's a general, he's gone rogue, and somehow he has this code. He sent to all of the planes containing all the nuclear bombs to bomb Russia, even though the president hasn't signed off on this at all. But General Jack D. Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden, do you think that name has any significance, aka Jack the Ripper? But anyway, so Jack Ripper, he kind of goes rogue, like I said, and all of the planes are now aiming for Russia. And the president gets word of this, and they have... Eighteen minutes in this war room to dissolve the situation, and like Dad, what you said when we were watching it is this movie gets right into it. I mean, there is tiny, there is so little development. It's just immediately they get this code and they're on their way to Russia to bomb the heck out of it.
2: Right, and it starts with a disclaimer, and and it has a very documentary feel, doesn't it? Yes. The disclaimer basically says the U.S. Air Force. Dot 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 dot, and it's it's almost as if the Pentagon said, hey this really couldn't happen. We later find out that it, it really could have. I mean, that's what all the past 40 years have been, that people have been deconstructing this film and all the messages in it. And But again, that documentary feel of the B-52s, these giant, ginormous planes that contain the nuclear uh, payload, uh, not just measured in tons, we're talking megatons. And so many terms came from this movie, like mega death. That was an actual term. Hmm. Death isn't enough. We're talking millions. That, that's what mega death means, at least a million deaths.
0: At one point when they were compromising with Russia, they were like, okay, we would lose 10 to 20 million troops, but as long as the world didn't fall apart, it's fine. And it was just like, that was the most ludicrous reasoning, but they really were freaking out. And Megadeth was, I mean, it was coming because and, of the doomsday machine. And not even
2: troops, just people, just, just average people. It wasn't even a, a war, because that was the thing by that point. It involved the entire population of the entire Earth, and it was tens of millions of people.
0: Yeah, so obviously we don't want to spoil this whole movie for you, and...
2: Then again, people have had 50 years to watch it.
0: True, but this is our 50th episode, so we don't want to spoil everything. So you guys can keep listening, even if you haven't seen Strange Love. But yeah, essentially they're just trying to fix a dire situation that will lead to the end of the world.
2: And that was good catch on your part, Liv, because one of the things I read, I actually did some research on this, failure in human planning and an over-reliance on technology sound like any other Stanley Kubrick movie that we've seen involving outer space. Oh,
0: 2001, for sure. And on the Stanley Kubrick note, how you say it feels like a documentary, it does at points, but then there are other points where the camera is just so still and stiff that it looks like a literal photograph. So the direction in this is immaculate, and it deserved... Award recognition. I think it got nominated, but of course Kubrick didn't win. Because why would he win for just a great movie? But yeah, it is an interesting field because when we're on the plane following Slim Pickens, who plays who is it? Uh,
2: Colonel Kong. His his nickname is King.
0: Haha! <laughs> yeah, Colonel Kong. When we're following him, it looks like a shaky cam documentary. But then when we're looking at Jack the Ripper and the president in the war room. It's just these beautiful and aesthetically pleasing shots.
1: And since you did more research on this, yeah. I'll ask you, Liv. Stanley Kubrick is probably best known for The Shining in 2001. Yes. Where did this film fit in in that order? What year was this made as opposed to the other two? Okay, let's see here. *Strange Love* was made in 1964,
0: And it was right after Lolita, and it was right before 2001. People would consider 2001 his masterpiece. I mean, people would consider that just one of the greatest movies of all time.
2: And Liv, do you want to mention who played the president?
0: Yeah, Peter Sellers. What
2: about who played the British officer who helped save the day?
0: Peter Sellers.
2: And, of course, last but not least, Dr. Strangelove.
0: The German scientist,
1: also played by Peter Sellers. He does an amazing job at playing multiple characters, very, very different characters, very different accents, very, some of them are villainous, some of them are heroic. Peter Sellers is just, really was one of cinema's greatest talents.
2: For those of you who are Monty Python fans, it's, it's fairly safe to say there wouldn't be Monty Python if there hadn't been a goon show before it in the 50s and 40s, and Peter Sellers was a big part of that. He's known as a comedic genius. And in fact, one of the conditions of Stanley Cooper being allowed to make this film is Columbia Pictures insisted on Peter Sellers playing not just three roles, but four. He mm-hmm. was he was asked to play four roles. Why? Because the previous film, Lolita, it's not that he played different roles, but he played different characters. Remember how he had almost like a split personality, very American. And I don't remember, it's been such a long time, but he played... Just his his ability to mimic and be other people is just an incredible transformation.
0: And Columbia Pictures thought that was why Lolita was a success, so they forced Kubrick to make him play multiple roles, which he would have happily played four roles, but he had a really bad ankle injury and he's British, so he had a tough time figuring out the Texas accent, so he couldn't play Major Kong. And that's why Slim Pickens came in. And on the topic of Slim Pickens, real quick, sorry, I just have to say his name like that, because what kind of name is that? (laughs) Uh, He was a big Western guy, and they didn't tell him that this was a satire. So Kubrick told him, just act to your best ability, this is a war movie. So he just acted like he usually would, and it still is super comical. So I don't know what that says about him as an actor, but...
1: And going back to Peter Sellers, um, again, I think most people probably know Peter Sellers best by the Pink Panther oh, movie. Yeah. He invented the character of Inspector Clouseau, and those are classics, too.
2: Right. And what's interesting about this, there's all these controversies about the film, about who actually wrote the screenplay. Against, Mank Podcast, Yeah, I got, Yeah, listen to Mank, because it's very similar to that with uh, Herman Mankiewicz and, and Orson Welles over Citizen Kane screenplay. So Stanley Kubrick wrote it. It was based on a book, Uh, written by a gentleman named Peter George called Red Alert, and they spent about a year on it. Enter this gentleman named Terry Southern, who was from Texas. He spent about a month on it, and ever since, he's been credited as writing the whole thing. But here's the thing. No one's ever really came out and said, no, he didn't do anything. No, I did more. He did more. Why? Because of Peter Sellers. He apparently ad-libbed so much of the dialogue that nobody can ever really say, well, no, I wrote this, and he didn't say it that way. Kubrick encouraged that. Can you imagine? I can't imagine any other movie like that. I don't can. You know, well, like,
0: I can't imagine Kubrick encouraging improvement. Well, like
2: George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Keanu Reeves.
1: Keanu is not.
2: <laughs> but imagine them going to an actor or actress. Here's the character. You you do you. And that's what they told Peter Sellers. I mean, all those all those conversations that he's having with the Russian uh, prime minister. Dimitri, Dimitri, That's <laughs> none of that was scripted. That <laughs> one's
0: perfect. That's yeah. when Peter Sellers is playing the president. Yeah, and he's all tense because he's on the phone with a drunk Russian president. Yeah, and
2: they said it was so bad on the set that he had everybody in stitches that many of the fel- many, many of those scenes were unusable because he was so funny. I've never heard of that happening.
1: I can't imagine Kubrick being so light And I think he must have gotten a little bit harder on actors as he went along. Yeah. Either that or that is a testament to what Peter Sellers was as a talent, how much he admired what he could do.
0: Yeah, I think it could be either. But I just still think about some of those behind the scenes of Kubrick yelling at Shelley Duvall in The Shining, and he was just horrible to her. And he was like, you're not getting the lines right. So to think that he's letting
1: Peter Sellers just do whatever he wants is madness to me. Yeah. Yes, Kubrick was known as being a very difficult director on Actors.
2: One example of that, is I remember when, when The Shining came out, they made this big production of he filmed a scene of them crossing the street 80 times, Watch The Shining, it didn't make the final cut. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up with that? Why would he do it so many times and then not use it?
0: And didn't he make Tom Cruise, like, walk through a door like 200 times? Just like
1: yeah, madness. eyes wide shut. Yeah. Yeah, it just... The man was a perfectionist. He might be blamed for the end of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's marriage. Oh, yeah.
0: And Dad's the only person on Earth who took Tom Cruise's side in this divorce.
2: Moving on. So, we've talked a lot about the times when this came out during the Cold War. The movie actually came out in, or was filmed and Ready to Go in 1963. Yes, I
0: misspoke. I'm sorry. The
2: first test screening was going to be on November 22nd, 1963. And for those of you who know your history... What happened on that day was uh, John F. Kennedy, president of the United States, was assassinated. So talk about not a good time to come out with especially a comedy where there's a a president and people are laughing at him. So that's why it was delayed into 1964. Understandable. And the other part of that was there's a famous scene where Slim Pickens, we have been mentioning Slim Pickens more than anybody else, <laughs> but he's so funny because he's so, he's so Texan.
0: He's wearing a cowboy hat the entire yeah. movie on the plane. Yeah. And
2: they're basically, he's playing himself essentially, but just this real brash. And And what's funny is that's the whole thing about this movie. Is it anti-American? Is it anti-military? I don't know if it's so much that it's just pro like American ingenuity because he does these things that makes the mission, uh, shall we say a success and he's, he's determined to get it done. And, and Europe is always calling people who do that in America, cowboys. And so you hear, you have a cowboy actually doing that. It's perfect. Right. But anyway, there's a scene where he's going over the emergency survival kit and it's like, you know, two gold bars, you know, seven Hershey bars. (laughs) <laughs> lipstick you know pantyhose all this stuff and he just kind of looks at looks up and he says shoot a fella could have a pretty good weekend in vegas with this stuff if you look closely he's actually it's, it was dubbed out they he said dallas originally and it's you can it's really clear it's a bad lip dub that they have but he, they changed it to vegas because dallas had such a reputation. For Killing that, the President of the yeah, United States. Yeah, essentially, Well, it had just happened. And it had yeah. just happened, so it was very, very sensitive. But that's that's one of the funniest, one of the funniest lines where he's going over and he just remarks, "Man, there's some good stuff in this kit," you know?
1: And that's also interesting how you brought up. It's kind of kind of a controversial movie, I guess, or at least was at the time, because it. Could be seen, certainly it's anti war. Certainly it makes you like suspicious of what the military is up to. And there's this again, most of it is, most of the crisis is spurred by this crazy general, crazy out of control general. But the characters generally are likable Mm -hmm. and they're kind of laughable. And so it doesn't, you're not really left with a. I don't know. It's just, it doesn't seem, to me, it doesn't seem like it's preachy like some more political movies. And um, so again, you can take it as you want it. You can enjoy just laughing or you can take it as a kind of a more serious indictment of the whole, I guess, military industrial complex and how um, dangerous the world is because of all these nuclear weapons.
0: Nice, mama. hmm And I agree with what you said. And I think Strange Love Crew, a big emphasis we make is just the mood you're in when you're watching a film. So I think that the last time I watched this movie, which was during quarantine, which kind of inspired us to make this podcast, Happy 50th episode, I was just kind of pretty down on everything. And just after watching it, I was like, okay, yeah, just a bunch of goofballs run the world and we can't do anything about it. But now that I watched it, they're still goofballs and they still run the world. But I think that they're just humans, and they're selfish, and they're flawed. And Dad, you had a good point. You said it while we were watching it.
2: Right. This idea that they're faced with an impossible situation. They have to make a decision within 18 minutes that's going to either save the world or destroy it. And that's kind of... And it's almost in real time. It almost happens in real time where they, they show it. And it's ironic, too, because they're when you mentioned the military base, remember the slogan on the billboard? Peace is our profession.
0: And it's getting all shot up. Yeah. It's just, just a disaster. And then the
2: classic, when there's a tussle in the war room, remember what the president says, gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room.
1: That's, <laughs> that's such that's, a classic that's, that's line. It's funny. And, and
2: it's a classic satire. And the, the definition of satire, it's probably better than what I'm about to say, but it's essentially... Something that's funny, not because it's so false. It's that there's a certain element of truth to it. You know, in other words, even when Kubrick was writing this, the reason he made it into a comedy was he was trying to write it as a straight drama. Yes, he was. And what happened was there were so many funny parts that he kept cutting out because, like, oh, that's too funny. We can't put that in there. Like the doomsday device.
0: Yeah, we should mention that. The,
2: yeah, it's a time to mention Yeah, the doomsday device. Yeah,
0: essentially, if a nuclear bomb was to hit anywhere in Russia, it would trigger this device that literally was underneath the ground and just the biggest nuclear bomb in the world and would just basically destroy the world. And if you tried to dismantle it, it would go off. So there was just no way around it.
2: And that was actually a real thing. It was called mutually assured destruction. What is the acronym? Mutually assured destruction? Mad. Mad. Insane. And so you could see, oh, that's one example of Wait, really? The acronym of this is MAD? And it was a real thing among scientists. They really thought it would prevent a nuclear war if everybody knew that if you did Mm. one bomb, it would blow up the entire planet.
1: And you have to admit that the characters in this are a real mix of eccentric... And I mean, the president actually seems... Very sane and very calm, but the Russian president, like Lev mentioned, is, is drunk and undependable. And the George C. Scott character is just a very macho, very competitive stereotype almost of the military leader. And by the way, George C. Scott is best known, almost legendary actually, for his portrayal of Patton, the movie Patton, which was made a few years later, where he mm. plays General Patton and does like probably one of the greatest acting performances of all time. So in a way this is kind of a kind of a humorous warm-up for that.
0: And a behind the scenes thing, have you read this dad? Kubrick told him to go as big as possible the first take, just to get in the zone, and he was like, Don't worry, man, I'm not gonna use this. Don't I'm not gonna use it. And then he totally manipulated him and used all the most ridiculous shots, and it kind of embarrassed George C. Scott for a while. He eventually came around to it like years later and decided that was the right decision. But his character is also fascinating because you can tell he kind of wants them to bomb Russia. Like, really wants them to. He's trying
2: to bring the logic to it, like... Wait a minute, let's look at this from another angle. <laughs> like, trying to make the best of the situation. And uh, we uh, do a surprise so attack. Maybe we can win this thing. And it's... No. He's giving it a shot. And then there's that one scene you mentioned where he actually falls down. Oh, The yeah. actor, he's like, he's so excited. You could tell that was not in the script. I mean, what actor falls down? He's so gesticulating, and he just trips over his own feet.
0: And all the random other powerful people in the
1: room just kind of look over at him. <laughs> but... Of course, we've discussed all these other characters, but come on, gang. Dr. Strangelove. There's only one Strangelove. There's only one Dr. Strangelove.
2: I think the key to his character is George C. Scott looks at this other guy, and he's leaning on him. He says, Strangelove, what kind of name is that? And the guy responds (laughs) with a name in German. Uh, He changed it when he became a U.S. citizen. And when you look up the translation in German, you know what it is? Mm -mm. Strange love. No. (laughs) It's the same thing. So in other words, I think it's very telling because he can't change. A leopard doesn't change his spots. He worked for Nazi Germany.
1: You can tell he's an ex-Nazi. In fact, in, in certain scenes, he can't. Really funny because he tries to keep his arm from... Going into the Heil Hitler. It's like the most physical (laughs) comedy ever. Yeah, and he's literally like biting
0: his hand. And he has this one glove for some reason. One glove. And he's biting the glove just trying to stop doing the Heil Hitler.
2: And even that, supposedly that glove was Stanley Kubrick's who would use the gloves to not get burned on the hot lights for the filming. And he thought that would be a perfect way to show his madness or his, his connection to the mother motherland. If you and well. his
0: character has a unique look to him. He wears these sunglasses inside. His hair is lopsided. He's in a wheelchair. Um, but don't feel bad for him because at the end, it's he's kind of redeemed from the wheelchair yeah, somehow. and in
2: doing some of the research, that's a good way of saying that. It was weird how much of an influence Dr. No, which was a James Bond movie, had on this film. That
0: movie's not good. Remember we watched it? It's not. It's very
2: boring. But the sets, the same person did the sets here. Mm. And the Dr. No character had a one glove. And so did... Michael Jackson. I think in Fritz... Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Michael Jackson did too. (laughs) But Fritz Lang in... Fritz Lang's Metropolis... The crazy scientist there had one glove.
0: He kinda looks like that.
2: Yeah, really interesting. Is but it the,
0: kind of an allusion to that I think so, either?
2: but the crazy hair, but but it's funny, the only person who really makes any sense he only he asked the most the question that makes the most sense, remember? And I can't even do try to pretend to do a German accent, but the way he does it is the doomsday device could be a very effective deterrent. But there can only be a deterrent if you told somebody. Why didn't you tell somebody?
0: Yeah, <laughs> he the was- Russian
2: is no what is he saying? It's like well, you know how the premier likes surprises. He was going to tell everybody on Monday.
0: Yes. <laughs> Because there's also this Russian guy there, yeah. and he's clearly a spy. The Russian ambassador. They're letting yeah. him in the war room for some reason. So it's just an eccentric group of characters. And they're all really smart in their fields, but it's just is not a good combination.
1: And most of them, ultimately, they're trying to save the world. They are. But um, I know, what, what, if, what if things really did come down to that group of people trying to save us all from destruction? And
2: imagine this room, right, carefully lit you know with the lamps on these desks this circular and strange love is the person you're going to (laughs) for the advice on what's going to happen why was he
0: invited (laughs) like who is that (laughs) and i think that i want to talk about the ending real quick so if y'all haven't seen strange love or dr strange love go watch it it is on amazon prime i think or you can rent it so happy 50th episode to the people who haven't seen strange love okay so now to the ending real fast there were two separate endings. Have you heard about the other ending?
2: Oh, yes. The,
0: the pie fight. Yes. Yeah. So originally, this movie was going to end in a literal pie fight somehow. I mean, I think it, it was obviously comical, but I think they were probably mad at each other as they were throwing pies. But Kubrick said it didn't work with his vision and it wasn't a good enough ending. So instead, the ending is Dr. Strangelove somehow just begins to walk and he screams, Mein fear, I can walk! And then it just goes into the Vera Lynn song, yeah. We'll Meet Again, which is a famous wartime song from World War Two, Right, Mom? Right. And it just is showing the end of the world, <laughs> basically. It just has a bunch of footage, I think real footage of the Mushroom
1: cloud. Yes.
0: Atomic bombs for a good three or four minutes. So the ending is literally Dr. Strangelove gets his walking back. He salutes to Hitler and the world ends. And remember
2: what he says right before that? I have a plan, and that's when he stands up. You oh, can only yeah. imagine what his plan was, because he was describing... Oh, no, to yes. remember that, his, oh, it was terrible, this whole, you know, we're going to live in these mines, a hundred years should do it, and the ratio of men to women is ten to one. All of a sudden, everyone's suddenly very interested.
0: Yes, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, he has a plan, and somehow he gets up, and then the entire world ends, because the doomsday device essentially goes off. So I think that about wraps it up. Any more fun facts, Dad?
2: Uh, just the point that the Wes Anderson connection, there were several scenes where he, I think Wes Anderson, the director, has made no secret that he's a big Kubrick fan. And you can really see there's these close-ups of these devices. There's a, the symmetry of some of the shots. Yes. And soon you'll be hearing some more about Wes Anderson in a bit. We've, oh,
0: yeah. yeah
2: lot, lots of stuff about him. But lots it, of Wes. It, it was interesting how you... When you see enough movies, you see the influences. And sometimes you see the, the new ones first. I'm like, oh, that's clever. But it's based on something else, which is based on something else, which is based on something else. And instead of being derivative, it really is an homage. It really is a tribute. And, and do we want to talk about favorite scenes or not?
0: We can if you want. I think I've kind of described a lot of my favorite scenes. Honestly, the ending is my favorite, even though it's dark. But going back to your point real quick, I think that for my generation of moviegoers and movie watchers, it's really hard for us to watch the originals before the new ones. Like, I know that Noah Baumbach, who y'all aren't the most fond of, but he's super influenced by Woody Allen. But I think that since all of Noah Baumbach's movies are on Netflix for everyone to watch right now, and since he's a big indie filmmaker, kids are watching the Noah Baumbach movies before they see the Woody Allen ones. So then if they watch Woody Allen, they're like, oh, that reminds me of this guy. But clearly... So yeah, I think that it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle for my generation sometimes.
1: Hmm. Yes, actually, it always helps to know the source.
2: And I think every generation is influenced by the one before, yes. whether they know it or not, mm-hmm. right? So just a couple of things on just real quick on on two of my favorite scenes. And they both involve telephone conversations where the only woman, remember, the only woman in the, in the movie is his girlfriend, uh, G- George C. Scott's. She's basically saying every single thing. It's all this classified information. He's saying a general has taken over and has ordered a nuclear strike on Russia. And, she, and he's like in the bathroom or something. And she's repeating. She's and, just
0: standing in like lingerie. And it looks
2: like a, it's a bikini, right? But it's, yeah. a, but it's a picture. It almost looks like a picture. It's shoes. a
0: beautiful shot. It's
2: just amazing for about, it lasts forever, three or four like minutes. three or four minutes as an attorney. And the other one is a phone call that a member of Mandrake makes a collect phone call to the president of the United States. And he's 20 cents short to make a collect call.
0: <laughs> he's trying. Yes, that's the other Peter Sellers character that we haven't really mentioned. But he's really the savior in all of this.
2: Yeah, he's- and he's
0: trying to get to the president to tell him the code to dismantle all of the planes from attacking Russia. Yeah,
2: to bring them back from their mission.
1: So how many gold stars would each of you give Dr. Strange? left? Oh,
2: that's appropriate. Gold stars for the gold 50th episode. Not quite the 50th uh, anniversary, but the 50th episode. I like that. Nice. I'd give it five out of five. It is an all-time classic. It makes the list every year. In fact, I want to go back and revisit some of those American Film Institute lists, because at one point it was lower. It was like 25 on the list of all-time great films. Then they move down to thirty nine, and I'm mm. like, "What's ahead of it? Like Forrest Gump or something?" You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. But then, within comedies, it's de- definitely a black comedy, and nightmare comedy. Five. It's, it's, it's in its own class.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd give it a five, and I, for me, it's kind of underrated, at least in the Kubrick filmography. I mean, the man's made a lot of good movies, and maybe it's that this one's in black and white, so people think it's from the eighteen hundreds or something. But this is a very relevant and modern movie, and the black and white is. This should not throw you off at all because you know it's what I beautiful. Th- you, know what, you know what I think it is? Unlike
2: his other films, this one is stuck in time a little bit. It's mm. stuck in the Cold War in the 60s, and it's something that basically all his other films do not have are, are kind of out of time, if you know what I mean.
1: And I also agree with the two of you. I definitely give it a five gold star rating. It's a great film. I think it holds up really well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it, ha- it really has something to say. It's still relevant today because it... It's about leadership and the dangers of war, etc. But it also makes you laugh.
0: I'm glad that the film that inspired our namesake has a unanimous five stars. That'd be kind of awkward if one of us rated it a 1.5. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you guys for listening to all of our episodes thus far. We enjoyed doing this. We started this during quarantine because we were just watching so many good movies. And we decided, may as well start talking about it. So, I hope that y'all have enjoyed it and we are gonna just keep going. We're gonna have some cool series for y'all soon. And follow us on Instagram at Strange Love of Movies Pod and DM us or comment on any of our Instagram posts what movies you wanna see next.
1: And when we started this, I don't think any of us expected to be doing our 50th episode still basically in quarantine.
0: Uh, we can hope that this world will go back to normal at some point. But wear your mask and stay safe. And thank you guys for listening to Strange Love of Movies and this Doctor Strange Love episode. Bye.
2: And in the words of the 1980s bumper sticker, don't let a nuclear bomb ruin your entire day.